how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. To infinity and beyond! Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? It's classified. You talking to me? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I can't lie! Expecto Patronum! Entertainment X. You never know what you're going to get. For this episode, I sit down and chat with Bobby Cronin. Bobby and I have a wonderful conversation about his upbringing, love for creating, um, the concrete jungle, Mary and Max, and so much more. This was a very heart-filling conversation, and I think you will enjoy it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bobby Cronin. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on the phone is Bobby Cronin. Bobby, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad I finally got these time time zones figured out. I'm in Edmonton, <laughs> Canada. You're in New York City. We're having a lovely phone conversation. Last week, you had your workshop, the 29-hour reading of The Concrete Jungle. Correct. Very exciting. And you just yes, got back it was from amazing. Germany. Austria. Uh, Austria. 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 Uh, working on yep. Mary and Max. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about so much more. Mm-hmm. I just want to take it back to the beginning of time for Bobby Cronin. What were your theater <laughs> dreams? Well, you know, I, I discovered theater at, I think, age five. My mom, um, I'm the youngest in my family, five kids. And my mom wow. was the president of the Mother's Club at my Catholic elementary school. And she decided to, as a fundraiser, put on like a variety show. That's what they called them back in the day, a variety show. Today we call it like a cabaret or a concert. Right. And, you know, I didn't really know what it was. And I just remember when, and it was in the gym, of course, the gym of the school. And I just remember when the lights went down and then the spotlights came on and there was music in front of me. I ended up at the front row sitting, looking up, and I felt something inside of me that I'd never felt before. And I just knew in that moment that I had to be a part of whatever that was. I had to be a part of it. And it's interesting because I've done many aspects of being involved in the entertainment industry. Um, But the stuff that I like the most is when I get to sit back and see it. So that's the writing, the directing, like that element, because I think that's where I first felt that feeling is to sit and see it. Did you perform as a kid? I did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So right after that, I get, you know, I was the one in my family that always liked music. I would sing all the time. I always got the lead in the play at school. And, um, you know, it's not anything that my, anyone else in my family did. We're all athletes. And, you know, I was a hockey player. And um, we just, you know, we, there were, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so there were never all of our money went to sports stuff. So anything that I did was usually at school and I was really lucky. I had some incredible teachers growing up that understood my family situation and saw that I had a talent and a, a, a desire to sing and, and act and dance and write and create. And they really guided me all through elementary school, junior high and high school. Did your family uh, foster your love of the arts, or was this something that no. you did at school? Okay, well, there it is. <laughs> Not at all. 
it was and uh, bless their hearts. It's, yeah. it's they just didn't they didn't do it. They didn't know it. It wasn't anything. You know, like my brothers are fat boys in the best way possible. They're great, great people. <laughs> but it was just yeah. nothing on our radar. And I think because I'm the youngest and I spent so much time with my mom, um, my mom loved musicals. And um, and again, do, being with her at the, the Mother's Club and seeing that, from that moment on, anytime she did anything, I asked if I could go to rehearsals. In kindergarten i had a music teacher who told my mom i think your son has some extreme musical abilities and in fifth grade uh a music teacher told my father i think your son is bordering on musical genius because he's never had any lessons and he can sit and play things that he hears to which my father said well what good is that going to do him in life (laughs) oh lord (laughs) so it's just yeah. yeah, so it's just so funny that this is what I do for a living. It's just a, a testament to that there was this talent inside of me that I just, I didn't, you know, I went to an Ivy League college at, where I started pre-med, and, and I could have been a doctor, and I just, I just had this thing inside of me that drew me toward the, especially theater. I like film as well, but theater specifically, that connection with a live audience, there's nothing like it. No, there really isn't anything like it. What did what did this what did this teach you or instill in you with a sense of independence? How did you become more independent as a result of you know? Yeah, that's great. That's a really good question. Um, I think what I what what this what so I always felt like an outsider, which all my work is all about. All, all of my projects are about outsiders, right. and. Um, uh, because I was an outsider and I had these, um, you know, I knew, I knew I was gay, for instance. So I always felt different than the other kids and, and never really had these great connections until I was doing shows. When I was in a show, I just, I, I felt at home. I felt complete. And it made me realize that if I wanted to do this, I had to make it happen. So I had a conversation with my parents. Um, going into freshman year of high school, where I said, I really want to do the school play. It was West Side Story. And my father said, well, I don't think that you can because of, of sports. Like, there's just no way that you can make it work. And I said, what if I can make it work? And he said, if you can make it work, you can do it. Of course you can do it. But remember, you have to keep your grades up. Your hockey is your number one priority. And I spoke to my... Um, drama teacher in high school who ended up being my biggest mentor uh, growing up and explained my situation and and he said, we'll make it work. He spoke with my hockey coach and together, and here's what's interesting, my hockey coach was my father's hockey coach. This guy was like this legend. (laughs) And and, you know, my father father, uh, played college hockey. He was offered pro to play with the Bruins and he turned it down to marry my mother. Wow. And so, you know, that's the, the world that I lived in. And so me being this kid that liked singing and dancing and like when Annie came out when I was a kid, the movie, like, oh my God, I'd be in my backyard putting on the play itself and, and just dancing and singing. And my siblings would look at me and be like, who are you? What's crazy is we all look exactly alike. But then there's me. This, I just had this. So um, what I did find out was my grandmother, my mom's mom, during the Great Depression, 
used to do singing competitions to win money for the family. So that's where I got that gene from her. I actually learned to play piano on her piano. Yeah. And it was a secret. It was a secret. So more on the independence thing, everything that I did um, often was a secret that I just didn't tell my family what I was doing, which made sense because I was gay and I wouldn't tell anybody. So I was used to keeping things to myself. Right. So I would, I would um, go take a dance class, for instance, and I would, I would say that I was going to hang out with my friends and I would go take a dance class. Or I would tell my parents that I had too much homework so I couldn't go to my brother's football game. And I knew I had an hour and a half where I could sit at the piano and create because I couldn't, we couldn't afford lessons. So yeah. I would listen to a song on the radio and try to figure it out. I would get books from the library and see where my hands were supposed to go. So, um, you know, once I got to college, I learned it all. So I learned backwards. I learned by ear first, and then I learned what everything's called. But this all is wrapped up in the independence thing. I think if there is something inside of you that you want badly enough, you'll find a way to make it happen. And I did. It was just something that made me feel complete in doing this. And, you know, being in anatomy class and acing it and doing all these, you know, dissections and stuff, I could have been a doctor. I know I could have been a doctor. I just don't think I would have been happy. Yeah. And it's weird because I probably would have been much wealthier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> much earlier. True. But I don't know. That's another like, does money actually equal happiness? And I've been grateful for the struggles that I've had in my career because that again goes with the independence of what well, I want this. That is my goal. So how am I going to make it happen? Okay. I'll walk some dogs. Okay. I will do, I will teach at a college. I will do whatever it takes so that I can have the time and the money to be a writer, an artist. And I think I learned that really young with, which again is still answering your question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was sort of instilled in, in us, um, if we wanted something, we had to get it. You had to do the things to make that happen. My father was very plan-oriented. My father had obsessive compulsive disorder. And so he was very regimented. And so anything that we would do, there had to be a, a purpose, a goal, which is great. And that's the point of writing. <laughs> like every scene, there has to be a purpose, a goal. So I kind of feel like um, everything happens for a reason. And I think that the way that I was raised and the way that I fought to make this my career has, you know, they say that if you love your job, it doesn't feel like a job. Right. I work probably 16, 17 hours a day. I love it. It doesn't feel like a job because I'd be doing it anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now that I actually get paid to do it and have productions around the world, like this is amazing. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's your, so. these are so many good points. Um, to, back to high school. Are there memorable yes. conversations you had with your high school drama teacher or sage yes. advice uh, you received? Uh, yes. He is the one that said to me, as I was looking at colleges, um, I, so I grew up right next to Harvard. And that was like, you know, the, 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 the golden chalice, like the, the greatest thing possible to go to this Ivy League school. Well, I didn't want to go there because I'd be 10 minutes away from my family. Right, <laughs> and I right. knew I needed space. 
I needed space to grow as a person. I needed space to embrace my sexuality and explore and, and to not think that my mom could knock on my door one day and be like, hi, I made cookies. So right, Harvard right. was never on my, right? It was never on my radar. But I really wanted, this is the competitive aspect of me, I really wanted an Ivy League school. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And honestly, it was my way of getting back at bullies. That yeah. if you made fun of me for being a theater fag or, or for being smart, well then at least I should go to the, the top place so I can be like, ha ha. Yeah. Which is, it's a horrible truth, but that was my drive. I wanted to succeed to prove to people that your words did, did the opposite. They propelled me instead of held me back. So when I was talking to my drama teacher, his name is Frank Roberts about colleges, I said Yale. And he said, you know that Yale is one of the best theater programs in the world. And it's like, oh, really? Well, there's a, they're also one of the best hockey teams. And I started um, with my dad's help getting um, the hockey coach to know who I was. Oddly enough, my father played against the hockey coach when they were young. And they were sort of pals. The coach had coached the Olympics. So it was like a big deal. But I was thinking the whole time, I'm going there for theater, for music, because it has this great program. So my drama teacher, in talking about the schools, he said to me, you know, he, everyone, he called me Bob. Um, almost everyone in Boston, because the accent is lazy. So <laughs> anyone that has a two... Anyone that has a two-syllable name, they become a one-syllable name. So it was Bob. Bob. Have you ever thought of directing or writing? And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, I'm not saying that you're not a good actor, but what I'm saying to you is, have you noticed that every one of your classmates comes to you to ask for help on their scene? And I was like, hmm, they do, don't they? he said, yeah, you have in you something that some people don't, which is, I think, that you're, you're a leader and you know how to communicate with people. And I think you know how to bring out a performance in people. And I was like, wow, okay. So I looked at Yale's um, curriculum and they had a directing focus and a writing focus in their theater major. And you know, never thinking I was going to get in, and you also have to audition to get into the theater program after you've been admitted to the school. So I never thought I'd get into either. I hoped. And it worked out. Right. So he's the one that really opened my brain to, there's more to um, being involved in entertainment than performing. But when you're young, that's all you know. You don't understand that someone wrote the script. You just see that people are performing. I even remember in college a director who I'm still good friends with, Barry Ivan. Barry uh, directed West Side Story. Oddly enough, I did it like four times as a performer. <laughs> he, he took me under his wing. I was a sophomore in college, and um, he said, you should audition. I'm directing uh, West Side Story this summer at Main State Music Theater. I'm going to get you an audition. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean you're directing it at Main State Music Theater? And he looked at me in all seriousness and he went, Bobby, this is my job. And I had never thought of a job. I, I know that's a very naive thing to say, but, 
I, I don't, that was the moment, it was such a defining moment for me where I, I said, oh my God, I can make a choice to have this be what I do for a living. Wow. Because I was still thinking I would be a doctor. And so I started having conversations with my parents about, you know, that summer I ended up getting West Side Story at Main State Music Theater. I was there for the whole summer. And my father's thing was, well, you're not going to make enough money to be able to then go back to college and have spending money for books and, and stuff. And so I didn't want to turn it down. So I actually went to my dean, um, at Yale and, and I explained the situation. I probably cried because I'm quite sensitive. And he said, well, we have a grant that you can apply for. That would be, uh, I think it was $2,000, which back then was a lot of money. Um, yeah. and added, if I got that added to what I would make that summer, it would be enough. And I got it. So I was able to do it. And, um, it was the first summer of my life actually that I did not play hockey. And it was when I made the decision of like, I think I need to make a choice. And I chose entertainment over hockey. And you were performing that summer. Yes. I was Chino in West side story with my bright blue eyes, but yes, I was. <laughs> Come on, Chino. And then <laughs> how and, many, how many bullets are left? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you are still creating all the while. That's still oh, yes. the passion so, project for you, but performing is like where you think it lies. Yeah, I always wrote. I always wrote songs. It was because I didn't know how to play the piano. I oh, could yeah. only play what I heard on the radio or what I heard in my head. Now, I was nicknamed the singing hockey player. I always sang. I would just it I didn't even know I was doing it, but I would just always sing. Like I would pick up something and I would sing it. Like I'm looking at flowers right now and I'd be like, yeah. oh yeah, flowers. And I, I, <laughs> it just was a natural thing. And my friends would be like, will you shut up? Like, what are you talking about? You're singing. I am. I didn't even know that I was doing it. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you can go, I have photos. They're really cool. But, you know, I used to write plays and musicals and put them on in my little cement backyard of my two family house. And I would get all the kids in the neighborhood and I would charge a dollar admission no, and, wouldn't. you know, thrifty, thrifty businessman. Yes. And I would put on these plays. Like one was the runaway pumpkin. It followed up by, of course, the smash sequel, the runaway birthday cake. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm living for this. <laughs> and then, you know, I would, I would write, um, you know, I grew up Irish Catholic and in a very small household, but oddly enough, none of us were very communicative with our feelings, with our emotions. Um, we all have very high and very low emotions in our, our family. Um, but we never really communicated about it. And I found that my way of communicating about my emotions was writing. Yeah. Even this little runaway pumpkin. Did, I think the idea came from, I wanted to run away one day. Did this help express, did this help you express yourself? And did you learn yeah, more oh my about God. your emotions as a result? Yes. So, um, in high school, 
uh, one of my very dear friends, uh, female, committed suicide, which is rare for a female at that time period. And, it, you know, it was just this sh shock through my little town. And um, I, didn't, I didn't quite have the tools to deal with how I felt. And, you know, I've since talked to my, my, uh, my father has passed away, but I talked to my parents about this comment that they made to me the day I was going into school. So it happened in the evening and then the following morning we had to go to school and face this all. And as I was leaving, I remember my mom said, don't cry, don't cry at school. And I was like, okay. My father said, yeah, yeah, boys don't do that. Okay. And so I was told to push my emotions away. Again, very time period accurate and very Irish Catholic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. what I ended up doing is I wrote like the first thing I ever shared with somebody. Um, and it was my way of, um, well, other than the place I wrote in my backyard, but like specifically I sat down and I wrote a song called um, Am I Dreaming? Am I dreaming or is this real? Because I don't know how to feel. Isn't it crazy? I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. One minute I'm happy, the next I'm sad. How could you do this? It makes me mad. Terrible lyrics, but it's how I felt. Right. And I started realizing, and like I went to the mall and recorded it in one of those like karaoke booths because I made a track. Like I found a way to make things happen. And I think I still have the cassette tape somewhere of that song. And I ended up performing it for my friend, her name is Holly, for my friend Holly's mom. And they asked me to perform it at a, her memorial and I said no, because I knew I couldn't. I'm just too sensitive. I cry like at the drop of a hat. Coffee commercials. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, Oprah when she lost weight, I was like, oh my God, she looks amazing. I just always been <laughs> and it's interesting because I think this goes with being an artist, but yeah. my, my father used to always tell me to, to harden up, to toughen up. Yeah. And I mistook that for him saying, stop being gay. And we had conversations before he died about this very thing. And he said, no, what I was trying to do was harden you up and prepare you for what the world really is. You're very soft. You're very emotional. And I said, well, I think that's what makes me a good writer. And my father, who never really liked music, the first time he went to a concert of mine, he was like, wait, you wrote all that? <laughs> like, yeah, I did. He was like, how? How, yeah. did you, how did you do that? He was shocked that that happened. And, you know, even in college, um, freshman year, first day, we have to go to watch. But Yale is, is um, full of these acapella singing groups. And first day, all, I think there were 13 of them at the time, all 13 groups at this beautiful building called Woolsey Hall. Um, you know, it's like, like um, Hogwarts in a way, which is like, it's so cool that I'm there and I'm in my little, my little blue blazer from, you know, poor Irish boy watching all this. And, you know, they're like the frat boy group and the sorority girl group and like, you know, keeps all these white people going on and on and on. Yeah. And then walked on this group that there wasn't a white person. They walked on with grace, with dignity, with, there was something, I, it was the same feeling that I had when I was five years old watching my mom. 
I, my chest rose up and they started singing. And I turned to my roommate who I'd met that day. And I said, I'm going to be in that group. And he said, yeah, I don't think you can. And I was like, nope, I'm going to be in that group. I have to. And they sang a song by a group called Sweet Honey and the Rock, a song called More Than a Paycheck. And they were singing a song about something. And then they did a piece called Amen, We Shall Overcome. And I just, I had to, I had to be a part of it because it, they were singing something that mattered. And again, that soft boy in me was like, it's that, I need this. And I auditioned and never thought that I would get in. And I became the first white guy ever in Shades. That's the name of the group, Shades. And I learned so much from being in that group. Again, having grown up in this sort of blue collar, white town, um, it really shaped the way I see the world. It shaped the way I write. Um, you know, Concrete Jungle is purposely um, meant to represent the melting pot of New York City. It's something that I was adamant about in casting. It's something I'm always adamant about in casting, that I don't a white story. I want to write a universal story. Yeah. When, when, yeah, it's weird. All these things came into my life that were unexpected, but it's sort of, again, these, these themes are in my work as well, but the idea of the unexpected being exactly what I needed. Right. Oh, it's good. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> when did you begin on, um, concrete jungle? Hmm. So I had had this idea of taking Cyrano and trying to find some way to modernize it, to update it. And to, I also, I love writing for women. And um, so I thought it would be interesting to take it from a flip point of view, meaning two women and a man instead of two men duping a woman what if two women are duping a guy and that was really all i had as as an idea and then i uh pitched it to crystal skillman and she said oh this is a great idea well we could set it in like an office we could do you know we had these ideas and then i got again a random twist of fate i ended up getting an, an agent in london from a a wonderful producer in New York City named Judy Kent took me as a gift for no reason at all, just out of kindness, took me to London to see hair Um, because she and I are both huge fans of Casey Levy. Casey Levy is one of the people I claim helped my career actually become a career because she sang my song, Dear Daddy, and it became sort of like this viral hit and then my name started getting known. So, yeah. and that's how I ended up meeting Judy, as a matter of fact, is because of that song. So she, as a surprise, took me to London. And as a thank you, I rented out a pub, got some of the cast members from Hair together, and did this like private concert for her. And there happened to be, as you know, movies say, an agent <laughs> listening, just there listening at of the bar. Of course. <laughs> and he... He came up to me. Oh, wait, no. There's another twist in the story. 
So right before I was going over to London, someone bought my sheet music from London. And I like danced up and down my apartment. I was, I was like, oh my God, someone from another country bought my song. This is incredible. You know, just the sheet music. Right. So I decided to, I decided to write to her. How did you find out who I am? Like, how, why, how? And she's like, you're huge over here. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And so when I found out that I was actually going over, I messaged her and said, hey, I'm coming over to London. Can you help me? I'm looking to rent out a little pub. So she gave me the place to, to contact. And then as a thank you to her, I said, hey, do you want to sing a song in it? And she was like, yeah, sure. She brought her agent. That's how he ended up there. Uh, He came up to me at the end and gave me his card. He said, do you have an agent? And I said, in America. He said, well, do you want one in the UK? I was like, yeah. (laughs) And he he said, do you have uh, any demos? And I said, oh, I have an an album, as we used to call them. And (laughs) so he took that, and then he called me uh, a week later, and he said, "Um, I've just booked you a huge concert where Jason Robert Brown did his first concert and we're going to get you big West end stars. And I was like, what is happening? And from that concert, I got a commission from Andrew Lloyd Webber's school called arts ed, which is like the Juilliard. No, it's more like the Michigan of the UK because they, they send out triple threats. They're so talented. So I got this opportunity. The commission was to write a song cycle. So I sat at the piano and was like, how do I just write a song for nothing? I didn't know how to do it. Right. I'm used to writing for character, writing for plot, writing to drive a story forward. That I sat down and I did not know how to just write a song anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I contacted them and said, can I instead write a musical? And he said, can you write a musical? And I was like, Yeah. yeah. I think, I think so. And you know, I have this philosophy of if something doesn't scare me, I shouldn't do it. This scared the, whatever out of me. Yeah. And I had my first big like opportunity. So I wanted to really very much my personality rise to the occasion. So I contacted Crystal and I said, Hey, I have this opportunity. Is it okay if I take this idea and just run with it myself? And she said, yes, if you need anything, let me know. So um, that, I wrote the show in 11 months, and I also directed it. And it was, because I, I sort of skipped this in my uh, thing, but my, when I graduated from college, I moved to New York and was auditioning as a performer only because I wanted to be a director. I was 22 years old and no one would hire me. So I ended up starting my own production company to have a reason to direct. I also loved new work and wanted to create new work. And so I started this company and um, as fate would have it, ended up working with Stephen Schwartz and, and he said, well, what are you writing? And I was like, no, I'm not a writer, I'm a director. And he's like, Bobby, come on. The piece that I did was I took all this material of Stephen Schwartz's and I turned it into its own plot-driven musical. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, 
I don't understand your brain. How does your brain work like that? Why did you even think to do that? That is crazy. And I said, oh, my God, do you hate it? And he's like, I love it. This is such an, a unique idea. And so he became a, a great mentor to me. And so he then came to see a piece called Personals that he had a couple songs and it was a, a flop in the 80s. And one of the things that my production company did was to take pieces that had not worked in their original um, version and to try to, uh, with the permission of the original authors, to, to try to either update them or rework them. And I did this piece called Personals and updated it for the computer age. And he and Alan Mankin came to see it, and they were like, how did you make this good? Oh, my God. And at the end, they were crying. They're like, I, this, we were, this was not something we were very proud of, but now th we are very proud of this. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a, a thing that, you know, forever changed who I am as a person. They then said to me, how can we help you? Wow. And that is how I've tried to live my life as an artist. How can I help you? Wow. So... Steven took me to lunch and that's when he's like, what, why don't you, why don't you write? I was like, well, I do write. He's like, well, why don't you share it? And I was like, uh, I don't know. It's always been private. It's always been personal. I don't know. And from that, I ended up a place that I directed at a lot called Northern Stage where I was associate artistic director. They asked me to adapt a Christmas Carol into a play. And this was right after I'd met with Steven. And I said to them, how about a musical? And they were like, seriously? And I was like, yep. Yeah. So the first thing I ever wrote was A Christmas Carol. And it was the, fir the first thing I ever wrote got, it had productions all across the country. Because it's Christmas Carol. Yes. And we found a really cool modern take on it that it starts in the present day about these really bratty kids and they get in trouble and their older sibling makes them read A Christmas Carol. And then they become the kids in the story. It's actually a really beautiful way to tell the story. Yeah. But from that, from that moment on, I was hooked on writing. I still directed here and there, but I really put my focus into writing. And um, so then after Christmas Carol, all of my friends were like, Bobby, your music is just beautiful. You really should, should really be pursuing this. And, I was like, ah, I guess I will. And it just so happened that my father got ill right around this time. So I moved to and helped my mom and my siblings with my father. And during that time, I started writing and made it like, I'm going to leave New York, then return to New York as Bobby Cronin, the composer, the writer, instead of Bobby Cronin, the director. Yeah. And it, it took a little while for people to take me seriously. You know, people are mean. They are. <laughs> I know you know this. Yes, yes. And and they're and they can be quite judgmental and you can be you can be pigeonholed really quickly. Yeah. And what's weird is most people did not know Christmas Carol as my first piece. I was working on a piece called um it had two titles. It was either Brat Camp or Welcome to My Life. And it was this rock piece. So everyone thought that that's all I knew how to write. Oh, he's just some pop rock writer. He doesn't know anything. And, and so I, I, I found that I had to work extra hard to get people to understand that I wasn't just some director that was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to now write. Right. But it's just, uh, I was just afraid, just afraid to share. Yeah. And once I shared, 
my life changed. And, you know, I made a promise to myself that if I ever had another show produced with me as Bobby Cronin, the writer, that I would get a tattoo on my wrist with my own music so that when I paid people at restaurants or coffee shops, that they would see it and they would have to ask me about it. And I would have to say out loud, I'm a composer Yeah. because I used to say that I used to say that and I would giggle or I'd feel like I'm a phony or like that thing of like, someone's going to figure out that I I'm winging this, that type of thing. Right. And yes. And by the way, it did happen. And yes, I have it on my wrist and yes, it still happens when I pay that people are like, Oh, what's that music? And I say, Oh, I wrote it. I'm a composer. This was for my first show. It was done in Chicago. (laughs) And it's great. It's like a really, um, you know, going back to a previous question, it's the, the, of all, all these things that were unexpected that just happened. So the, the concrete jungle was this unexpected, um, commission that it was the first thing that I got paid to write up front. It was just like, what an amazing feeling. And then I got to go live in London for almost three months. I directed it, which was both a blessing and a curse because I could fix things on the spot. Right. <laughs> but right. luckily I had, I had two choreographers that sort of worked with me um, when I needed to step back from being a director and just look at something as a writer. Um, and then that show ended up being such a big success there that people were yearning for a recording. And my agent, my British agent, helped, and we were able to fundraise quickly and we went into Andrew Lloyd Webber's recording studio and we recorded this international cast album. Then my father died. And then I, I, I lost my funny bone. And I felt really guilty. <laughs> Not terrible, yeah. but I felt guilty that right. while my father was dying, I was in London crafting this romantic comedy. Which is interesting because there's there's a song called One of Five in the show, which is me. Right. So I know that there's a piece of my father in there. Now, at this time, when my father died, I had just gotten the right to marry an act. And so as an artist, I said to myself, if I'm going to get through this death, I need to write Mary and Max. Because it's about death. It's about family. It's about darkness. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. And it's humorous and I I naturally have a from growing up with an Irish father. I have a a very odd sense of humor. So that style of humor was much more what I needed, that dark humor. And I sort of dove into Mary and Max and put Concrete Jungle away. And it, it, there were years of guilt. Even sometimes I would hear a song from the show and I would be like, "Oh, I was a terrible son." But I wasn't. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was like that survivor's guilt thing. And um, yeah, that's, to yeah. pick it back up recently, yeah. And, but to pick it back up recently, you know, again, I think everything happens for a reason. And here I am six years later looking at the show. I'm now single and have been single for a long time. In fact, I've been single six years. And, um, and I'm much more um, happy with myself as a person. 
because I don't need somebody else to make me feel complete. And that really focused my rewrites of the project, of coming at it from, we don't need someone to survive. Right. But it's nice to have someone with you. So I changed my sort of, at first the piece was about, um, you know, you, 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 being single is the worst thing in the world. Not, it wasn't about this, but it felt like being single is a, is a bad thing. And searching for love is foolish. And now I look at it as searching for love is beautiful. Yeah. Finding love is special. And, but you don't need somebody. You can be perfectly happy on your own. And that's what, to me, what the character of Claire in that piece, for instance, represents. Even though she's a serial dater, she has this thing about her that she doesn't need somebody. But if there's someone there, great. But if not, she's totally cool with just being herself. And I think that's a, a message that I'm very proud of in the piece that in my rewrites now, I want to pull out even more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I veered off, I veered away from the question. My apologies. No, this is this is great. This is all really great, and I love that. Thank you for being so open to share all of this with us. I want to know what what have you learned about the collaboration aspect uh, with Crystal? Gosh, collect. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Crystal and I we're old friends. Uh, young. We're young old friends, but we're <laughs> we're. Right. We've known each other for a long time, and we both had this great respect of each other's work. I directed a reading of one of her early plays, and we were uh, introduced to each other by mutual friends who just thought we would really like each other. And we do, which is great. So yeah. we, um, we collaborated on a project years ago called That's which was this idea that I had about a boy who shows up to his local audition for Annie in a dress. This was, are you ready for the time period? This was 2002 that I had this idea. Wow. Yeah. And we, de we developed it. We did all these readings. People went nuts over it. We got option for Broadway. I ended up getting fired because I was an idiot and did not put myself down as a writer because I was scared. This was before I actually went for writing, but I wrote half of the show with them. Right. And so it was an amazing learning process. But the reason I bring that up is that recently uh, a theater, I'm not going to say which one that had seen that reading all those years ago, I think that reading that they saw was 2005 or six, they contacted me and said, Hey, what's happening with that show? And I was like, what show? Sandy. I was like, you're joking, right? It was something that we had put away. We had never thought to bring back because of um, uh, the piece in London about Jamie. And then there's one becoming Nancy. So like my idea was not stolen. I don't mean that like someone found it and took it, but the idea, which was kind of an obvious one yeah. was taken now when this subject matter is much more palatable and what, the artistic director of that theater said to me was Bobby, you were just 10 years ahead of your time. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so it's, and so it's interesting that Crystal, Crystal and I have always been interested in telling offbeat, I hate that word, but offbeat, um, character driven, um, 
pieces of theater. Crystal, like me, we both grew up feeling like outsiders. You know, she has, she's always been quirky looking with her, her fashion and, you know, pigtails. And, and she talks a lot like I do. And, and so we, when we met, it was so clear what types of stories we wanted to tell and how we wanted to tell them. Meaning taking the traditional form of musical theater and keeping that, but can we find ways to not advance the form, but challenge the form, if you will. And um, that is really what we did with Mary and Max. In that adaptation, uh, we really, you know, we, we used our 12, the, the hero's journey, 12 steps. Yeah. And, but it, we just kept thinking, how do we, because it's based on a claymation film. Where that is very visual. So how do we, and the tempo of the film is very slow. So how do we take that? And as her book writer, Nia's lyricist composer, how do we take it and merge our work so that it feels seamless, so that it feels like one person wrote it? And that has been our goal with every project we've worked on. And luckily, that is what people say. They will always say, Crystal did, did the words. And I will go, actually, no. She did the book. I did the lyrics. And they go, really? It sounds like the same voice. I'm like, good. <laughs> then we're doing our job. That's what we're, I thought that's what the job was. Yeah. Um, and what I love about working with Crystal specifically is she has such a great dramaturgical mind that she can, I can send her a draft of a song and she can say, oh my gosh, this is incredible look at the third to last line and see if you can twist it so that we end in a new place. Huh. And then I will then with her, she will write me a scene and I will say, Oh my God, this is great. Can you take that and make it half as long? Yeah. Which is a challenge. And so what's great is that we challenge each other to in a positive way. And then like, sometimes I'll get stuck and I will call her and be like, okay, I need a lyric that rhymes with this. It has to rhyme. It has to be a perfect rhyme because I'm crazy about that. And we, she lets me be like, she, she becomes my sounding board and we'll bounce ideas off each other. And she will call and say things like, ah, like we just cut one of the first songs I wrote for Mary and Max. It's been in it the whole time. And, and just recently we both were like, I don't know if we need that. And we tend to have the same ideas at the same time, which is awesome. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I, the, my first, the Christmas Carol was a collaboration, but the Brat Camp piece was all me. And I yearned for a director that would become my collaborative partner. And I never really got that. Um, never really had a, a you know, the piece got optioned for Broadway, actually. And one of the reasons that we never moved forward was that the producers, the, I had directors that I wanted. They, those, those producers were not really interested in those directors. Right. And, and so we never really found this common ground on why the story needs to be told. And when the option was up for renewal, I uh, walked. I said, thanks, but no thanks. And um, it was scary, like really scary to do that. But um, 
I kind of had this feeling that the show just needed to be, that that was my, I'm learning how to do this musical. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, and saying to myself, collaboration. I love collaboration. So interestingly enough, going back to looking at Concrete Jungle today, I'm still the sole writer of the piece, but I have Crystal as a sounding board. I also have these great producers as, um, like during the reading the other night, I get really nervous. So I usually watch readings from outside the door. <laughs> I can't believe I just, I really can't believe I just submitted that, but I, I do. I get really nervous. Yeah. And I don't want my, my energy to infiltrate the room. Yeah. So, um, uh, one of the producers came out and, and a song started and I turned to him and I said, I have an idea. And I just started talking and he bounced back and then I bounced back and we just kept bouncing back ideas. And by the end of it, I solved a problem that I'd always had with that moment. Yeah. And it was simply communicating with another person who has the same goal. And that goal is to tell the best story possible. Yes. And that's what collaboration should be. I've been in some collaborations um, that haven't been as great. Like I work with um, Caroline Prue on another project and she's a dream to collaborate with. And I work with Christine Toy Johnson on another project. She is a dream to collaborate with. I'm now working with RC Stab on, I can't tell you what it is because it's so cool. Yeah. And we don't have the rights yet, but it's really close to getting the rights. But we're going to do a, a comedy, a two-person comedy adaptation. And so far, our collaboration has been wonderful. I worked with a writer named Wade Dooley, who is a genius. And that collaboration was great. I just, I love collaboration and in fact i thrive on collaboration and i think that that is what makes musicals different than any other art form because like the production of mary max in austria for instance the visual design was such an important aspect of the storytelling that in order to get that design we talked a lot right how does the show move? What does it feel like? What is, what world is this in? What's the tone of the piece? Like all these great questions that become collaboration. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, any advice I could give to anyone out there is don't be afraid of it. It's probably the greatest gift of this industry. Same thing with an actor. When I'm working with an actor, I'll change a key for a song. If it fits their voice better, why not? It's just foolish to not do something like that. I will also be very detailed with why I chose certain uh, melodic rises or why I think that note should not be belted. And then the actor, I look for an actor to then respond with, oh, that's really interesting because I was feeling that if this note was the big note, then I could pull back here and internalize this moment, which then I go, ooh, that's really interesting. Let's try it. Yeah. So I think that the whole thing is collaboration. The whole thing really is. And that if you go into a... It is. And if you go into a project with I'm King, you're in trouble. Yes. Yep. This is so This is so well said. I really appreciate you sharing all of this, Bobby. I know it's like time oh, my, flies my pleasure. when the flow state happens. And this has been a flow state of a conversation. <laughs> Sorry. I could talk to the wall. Yeah. So I... <laughs> In, 
And I also teach, so I'm used to communicating to I just love um, I feel an like, audience. I feel like there's Thank a part you. two in here somewhere in the future. <laughs> uh, anytime, as we, anytime. As we wrap up here, is there a billboard quote, metaphorically speaking, you'd put on a, you know, a, on a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see? Does anything come to mind? Yeah. Um, you know, I have on my wall, um, as I walk down my stairs in my house, I have on my wall, and it was actually gifted to me by my friend Kathleen Wallace, that says, what I do matters. Yeah. And for a long, ooh, wow, my eyes just welled up. I'm glad you can't see that. But for a long time, I questioned, should I have been a doctor? Because then I would have helped people. Right. And I realized, you know, in, when my friend gave me that, it was because we've had this conversation and she said, but you don't, don't you understand your stories? They matter. They help what people. you're telling, what you, what, how you're making people look at the world. That matters, Bobby. That's really important. As important as fixing a broken leg, you might fix a broken heart or a broken brain or a broken attitude by simply telling a truthful story, an honest story. So and it, and it, that and is what helps. my billboard would be. I love that. I love that. And it helps people. Because you are helping people yes. by telling these stories in a different way, an emotional way, maybe not you know, a medical way. Or no, emotional can be medical, though. <laughs> it can. It can really help. Absolutely, because a release. Yeah. And, you know, the stories that I want to tell, I think they do matter. You know, one of the things that I, I was very adamant about with, with Concrete Jungle, and luckily I, I had zero resistance from producers, was that I wanted to make sure that the, that the piece looked like the New York City I exist in. I, and going back to the thing with Shades, my singing group, that I, this isn't a, a white world. And we're at, you know, what I said to one of the producers, and maybe this would be a billboard quote too, Obama said, it's good to be woke and all, but you have to act. Yes. And so that is, that has become like my new philosophy of instead of saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice if this, or wouldn't it be just doing it? No, I want this actor in this role because she is the right person for it. Yeah. No, I want this man. Well, you know, he, he doesn't have as many followers or, well, she's a trans woman. Can a trans woman really play this role? Yes. And luckily I've been met with no restraint or no stop. More of like, yes, Bobby, we need this out there. Yeah. And so that, again, that's the, what you do matters. What I do matters. Yeah. You're telling West Side Story today. That matters. Yes. Oh that my story God. has to be told. Yeah. All of these stories, the prom, that story had to be told. That mattered. You know, like and even the share show, like all of these shows, they matter. Because watching a woman who was brought down by the world rise to the top, hopefully that inspired some weird-looking girl out there who feels bad about herself to say, if that woman did it, I can do it. Yeah. That, that matters. Bobby, this is, it couldn't be more relevant, timely, and true. And I appreciate you for sharing this Thank story you. today. This has been such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I can't wait to share it with everyone. I know other people will <laughs> My pleasure. will grow as a result. So thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, 
Bobby Cronin. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.